Volume. You're listening to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the commission as a standalone entity or process, whichever way you may want to describe it. It was first recommended by public protector Tulima Donzela in her State of the Capture report in 2016. But it was only established by former President Jacob Zuma in early 2018. This after a judicial process in which he had taken the State of Capture report under review, although that was of course unsuccessful, hence we have the commission. Now, one of the first things the commission did upon its establishment was to apply for an extension of its term. There've been a few more extensions after the initial one. Three years later, we're still hearing oral evidence. The Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution, or CASAC for short, opposed the very first request for an extension. In this episode of our podcast, we speak to CASAC's executive director, Lawson Naidu about this and several other issues related to the commission. Lawson, welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked. We're delighted to have you. Uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me and uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, we're going to go into that, that um, for a bit of background into the very um, point I've just made that initially Ms. Madonzela, the former public protector had recommended that the commission run for 180 days. We're now close to three years of oral evidence. Um, I think the third year anniversary is happening in August. Who between the two of them, that would be DCJ Raymond Zondo and of course, Ms. Madonzela, who got it wrong in terms of how much time was needed to go through the evidence that um, was required to, to be explored? Well, I would probably say that they both got it wrong. I think um, Advocate Madonsela's initial proposal of six months, the 180 days, was probably too optimistic, even to deal with the issues that she had uh, raised in her state of capture report. Uh, we know that subsequently, when the commission was established, that the terms of reference went uh, far beyond the issues raised in the public protector's report. And uh, it's certainly, I think, three years is far too long. And, you know, as you pointed out, CASAC opposed the first extension, which the commission applied for. And that extension, you know, we wanted it for, to be for, for 12 months rather than 24 months. Uh, in the end, it was settled on an 18-month extension, uh, which we, we ultimately concurred with. And then, as we know, the commission sought a further extension to extend its work to December 2020. And in that second application, CASEC argued that it should be a final extension and that it should extend to March 2021 to give enough time for the completion of the hearings and the production of the report. And we know that uh, a third extension was sought uh, earlier this year uh, to extend the time frame from March 2021 to June 2021. CASAC uh, supported that because of the impact of the pandemic and the uh, strict lockdown that we went through in the course of 2020, and we felt that it was reasonable for an additional three months to be uh, given. But, uh, you know, all in all, I think the, the three years and counting that the Commission has been underway is far too long, because I think South Africa needs finality on these issues. 
Can I just get the grounds or the, the principle on which you opposed the very first extension? Well, it was really on the basis that saying, you know, this needed to be a speedy report because the issue of, of state capture was tearing our society and our country apart, having significant impacts on uh, the socioeconomic situation, on investment, uh, on the economic climate broadly. The Commission needed to move with speed to come up with a set of recommendations and, uh, you know, and to allow us to then uh, deal with those recommendations and begin the process of rehabilitating our country and in particular those institutions that were at the center of state capture and that was really the reason that we said that this thing needs to have a finite lifespan and we need to have an end date and we need to get that report and then deal with the recommendations from the report. Now I know that our current discussion is a retrospective look into things that happened two three years ago but would you like to see in the final report of the commission some explanation for, for members of the public, of course, and for, for other commissions that may come up in the future. Would you like to see them unpack whether or not it has been useful for the commission to run for three years? No, I think that's a critical part because, you know, I think first and foremost, the commission itself needs to be held accountable. And, you know, they need to be transparent and, uh, and open with the South African public why they needed all of this extra time, how exactly that time was utilized and why time was utilized in the way that it has been, you know, which we'll probably come back to a little bit later. But uh, the Commission must be accountable and must explain why it needed this additional time, uh, which, as we all know, has also come at great financial cost. The cost of this Commission is something else that also needs to be accounted for. And it's also something we're going to be talking about later on. <laughs> now, um, one of the things I've heard the DCJ speak on is at the beginning or at the establishment of the commission, that the idea of having a panel of commissioners was explored. And um, he decided against the, the panel idea and chose, of course, the one person commission that we have now. Do you think that that could have had an impact perhaps on how time has been spent? Well, I'm not sure that it's necessarily, you know, would have had a direct impact on the, the length of the proceedings of the commission. I think we've seen a number of other commissions in recent times from the Marikana Commission to the Nugent Commission, where it's, they've been headed by judges uh, or retired judges, but accompanied by uh, other panelists who assist in sifting of the evidence and, and sharing the workload of the DCJ. So I think that, you know, I would uh, think that, that the process would have been improved and enhanced had we had uh, perhaps two other commissioners sitting with the uh, Deputy Chief Justice. Well, on that note, would you say that it has stuck to its mandate? Has it not been um, muddied along the way? Well, I think it, it, has, it has allowed uh, mandate creep to set in. And uh, when I say that, uh, for two reasons. So firstly, in her state of capture report, the public protector, as I said, identified uh, certain issues that a commission of inquiry should focus on, uh, something that has now come to be known as the public protector issues. Whereas the, as I said, uh, you know, when uh, former President Zuma established the commission, he broadened the terms of reference to include all uh, state contracts with all state entities. And that was obviously uh, an almost impossible task. 
So uh, that's the first part of it. So in my view, the commission should have stuck to, or at least prioritized the so-called public protector issues right from the very beginning. Uh, that they didn't do. Secondly, you know, in my view, they've misinterpreted the terms of reference. And instead of looking at what the structural issues are around uh, state capture and how weakening of state institutions contributed towards state capture, they've gone into a very detailed evidentiary process around hearing evidence about specific aspects of specific contracts and so on, which I think has, has detracted and, and has elongated the commission. That is something that is best left to the law enforcement agencies, because ultimately, even after the commission has heard all of this factual evidence, uh, they're going to have to refer those matters to the law enforcement agencies. They're going to have to do their own investigations and with a view to prosecutions. So I think the commission would have better spent its time looking at a, uh, what I would say is a macro level, a holistic view of the institutional uh, makeup, be it institutions in the criminal justice sector, state-owned companies, rather than get into the detail of each one of those uh, misdemeanors. I, I totally agree with you. I, I hold the same position. And to take it further, I would, I would even say that evidence such as that of perhaps Busasa and the later evidence that was heard on government projects in the free state, for instance. I mean, we know that the Estina project was always going to come up at some point, but the detail to which attention has been brought to particularly provincial pro uh, projects that happened in the free state for, for me becomes a bit of a, um, a diversion. I think it, there, was, there was a bit of off-ramping there. Yeah, look, you know, I think some of the evidence would have been useful. For example, who were the key decision makers in each of these things? So take the Estina uh, dairy farm matter as an example. I think it would have been, uh, uh, you know, uh, and it was useful for the commission to hear who were the key role players within the free state provincial government that, uh, that uh, took these decisions. And once that is identified, then that's a matter for the law enforcement agencies to follow up on and investigate uh, and so on. And similarly, I agree with you in, re in relation to the Pasasa matter. Mm. Mm. Now, one of the, the ways that a commission of this magnitude can be held accountable is in it communicating its inner workings with members of the public for us to, to have the confidence that is required in such a process as well. One of the issues that have come up has been its own housekeeping processes. What are we to make of such circumstances in a commission that prides itself on wanting to make every move of its public image uh, known by the public so that they have confidence in how it runs its own operations? Look, I broadly agree. I think the commission has not been as transparent as it could and should have been in order to uh, instill public confidence, but also to, to structure its work in a way that makes sense to, to ordinary people. I mean, I would focus more on the workings of the commission. And there should have been a clear delineation of how the commission was going to tackle its terms of reference to say we're going to deal with evidence relating to, for example, ESCOM or Transnet, and we're going to hear the, uh, 
this list of witnesses in regard to that, rather than one day hearing evidence about SAA and the next day hearing evidence about Bosasa and so on. So it was an unstructured uh, approach, which I think uh, has contributed to its uh, longevity. Uh, and that, that level of transparency we didn't de is to see. Even now, you know, they only tell us the day before uh, who is going to appear the following day. So one never knows who the witnesses are that are lined up to still to come. And here we are sitting, you know, two weeks ahead of the commission's deadline to uh, submit its report. And we don't know which uh, witnesses are still outstanding, apart from the fact that we know that President Ramaphosa is going to come back at some point. And I think this has been one of the failures of the commission. It's probably, I would say, also because the spokesperson of the commission does not take or give interviews. Um, he, he's not in the media. He does not uh, speak to the media hardly. I mean, it's only when the media itself has to ask specific questions about the inner workings of the commission. And even then, the, the answers that are given are quite vague. He doesn't give in-depth interviews at all. Do you think it's, it's part of the deliberate playing your cards close to your chest kind of operation? Or is it just something that probably isn't done deliberately, just oversight on their part? Look, I wouldn't want to speculate on what the reasons are for that, but I think the fact of that being, as you explain it, the spokesperson not being readily available to provide information and give interviews uh, is a big part of a, a gap between public understanding of the processes of the commission. And yes, you know, uh, the public at large, you know, uh, is often salivating at the, the, the information that is emanating from the commission. But uh, you know, is that really serving the, uh, the purpose of the commission and contributing towards it, uh, delivering on its terms of reference and being able to make a set of meaningful recommendations uh, to, to tackle the challenges of corruption and state capture. So I think in terms of transparency, of um, providing regular information to the public, uh, the commission has not done very well. Now, I want to go back to a point you made briefly earlier on about the structural inadequacies in, 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 in how evidence was being led. If I were to make an, a subjective conclusion, I would say that between the beginning of, of its term in 2018-2019 and what we have currently, pretty, they have pretty much lost the ball a few times. Uh, they've dropped the ball a few times in the sense that in the beginning, when we, we had an idea of how the SOEs are going to be explored or the evidence around the SOEs was going to be explored, it was the evidence leader who brought you know, the overall uh, outline of how it was going to, to be explored and all of that. Now, currently, we seem to be at a point where the commission seems to be drawing on whoever is available to give evidence and not necessarily structuring it in such a way that it makes sense to, you know, to, to finish off the initial work that was done by other evidence leaders before them. Do you, do you see the same thing I, I'm seeing there in the sense that the institutional memory, it's a disjointed process well, it comes back to what I said earlier, is that the Commission has not adopted a structured approach to dealing with its terms of reference. And it, you know, if it had focused on a particular area uh, with a particular evidence leader who's researched the issue and, and so on, 
and, and followed that to its conclusion, um, you know, that would have certainly, I think, enhanced the effectiveness uh, of the Commission's work. The second point I would make, uh, which you referred to about, you know, hearing witnesses when they're available, uh, you know, I argued right from the start that the Commission should have subpoenaed every single witness. So there was no distinction whether it was a voluntary witness or a reluctant witness, but everyone would be served with a subpoena and say, we want to hear your evidence on such and such a date. Now, obviously, in some cases, you know, some witnesses may have very good reason for not being available. But by and large, you would have had people comply with the commission and fit in with the time frame of the commission, rather than the commission fitting with the time frame of witnesses who want to pick and choose when they appear. Casac mm -hmm. is part of the civil society working group on state capture. Do you think that group and its work and its holding of the commission accountable has had an impact on this very issue? Um, have, have we had anything come back to the civil society working group? Has, has this working group explored the issue of mandate and whether or not the commission is sticking to it? Well, look, with the civil society working group, I think there are, you know, for me, there are two aspects of, of the work that it has done. Uh, the first, and I think the most important part of the focus of the civil society working group is to provide a, a forum for sharing of information amongst civil society uh, groups, and particularly those that have made submissions to the commission, so that we don't replicate uh, submissions and the content of submissions, and we work in a collaborative and uh, uh, information sharing manner. And I think to that extent, the working group has been successful. The second part of its work has been to sort of uh, create a line of communication between civil society and the commission. And here it's been, a, 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 there has been some success in that there is a line of communication to some of the senior staff at the commission. And we've had the head of the investigations unit and the uh, secretary of the commission participate in some of those meetings. Uh, it's provided a channel for civil society to communicate its concerns about the commission but I'm not sure that we've always received uh, responses uh, to the issues that we've, we've raised or that there's been meaningful discussion on those issues. Surely the issue of the cost of the commission is one that has also been explored by the working group. Uh, look, I mean, I think at the, the last figure I saw was sort of 870 million. So it's likely to be, if we look at a round number, around 1 billion rand when it finally completes its work. Now, that's a, a significant amount of money in any context. And, uh, you know, the Commission is going to have to account in detail as to how that vast sum of money was, was spent. You know, what were the line items that it was spent on? And is it just by the Commission or the Department of Justice? Well, the funds come through the Department of Justice. And so the Department will have to include a, a detailed report on the Commission's expenditure. Uh, when they report to, to Parliament. And I think what we, what we would need to see is a more detailed breakdown of the cost that we've seen so far uh, from the Department of Justice. But, you know, we certainly expect to see that at the, uh, once the Commission has finished its work and, and can provide a comprehensive uh, financial report to the Department. Now, taking into account everything we've just discussed, Lawson, um, has the Commission been worth the money that has been spent on it? 
You know, uh, that's a question I get asked uh, very, very often. And my answer is always, well, uh, we, we'll only be able to answer that question when we see the report of the commission. Uh, I think, you know, the commission has been a worthwhile exercise in many respects because it's unearthed a significant amount of information. It's, it's engaged the public. You know, people talk about the Zondo Commission all the time. Whether that, uh, you know, uh, the expenditure justifies that is a question I think we can't answer just yet. But ultimately, the success of the Commission is going to be uh, measured on the nature and the kind of recommendations that, that it makes, firstly. And secondly, and very importantly, is whether those recommendations are acted upon. Uh, you know, we see, for example, you know, we have the Marikana Commission, which I referred to earlier, and many of the recommendations of that Commission uh, have not been implemented, for example, about the use of rubber bullets for crowd control, which is something that the Marikana Commission and the working groups established thereafter dealt with, but have not been implemented. So, uh, you know, it, this is a process. It's about the work of the commission, the report, and then the implementation of its recommendations. Perhaps some years down the line, we're going to look at our um, frustrations over its long period of, of uh, existence and relate that to the amount of work that you know would have to be done by law enforcement agencies and it'll it'll be all perhaps have been worth it in eventually yeah and you know i think the, the, a lot more could have been done you know we know that the rules of the commission were only amended in the middle of 2020 i think in july 2020 to permit the commission to openly share information that its investigating team had unearthed with the law enforcement agencies. There should, it should have been a much closer level of cooperation between the commission and the law enforcement agencies right from the very beginning. And that may well have prevented the commission from getting into the detail of some of the evidence it heard if those issues were being dealt with from an early stage by the Hawks uh, and the NPA. And finally, where do you, when do you think we're going to actually have sight of this report? Well, we've been told because the Deputy Chief Justice made reference to this a few weeks ago that he is going to seek yet another extension uh, in order to complete his, uh, uh, his report, which as I say is due on the 30th of June. Uh, he has not applied for uh, an extension as yet, as far as we know, but we know that the DCJ has publicly said that he's going to seek one. And we would certainly hope that it's an extension that is perhaps no more than an extra two months to enable him to write up the report. So it would be futile at this late stage to try and uh, you know, stop him from having an extension, but it's got to be a, an extension that is on a realistic time frame. And to say, you've got two months, you must produce the report in that time. You must stop hearing evidence and get to work on finalizing that report. Thank you so much, Lawson, for your time. Uh, we've really appreciated having you with us. That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Mabeng Valencia Talani. Join us again soon for more discussions on the State Capture Commission. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Stay safe. Volume.